You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. Today is actually a very, very special session of ETL because we have here sitting next to me six recent alumni of the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. And all of these students have started really interesting ventures. So today we're going to get a sense of all the things they have done, the trials and tribulations, and the exciting milestones that they've had in the time that they've started these ventures. What I thought I'd do is start with them and ask each one to introduce themselves very, very quickly uh, so we get a sense of who's in the room. Tristan, hello, hello, great. Uh, my name is Tristan, uh, and I started a company called Apture. Um, our company reimagines the way that you access information uh, on the web. And uh, I graduated in 2006 and majored in computer science and uh, also did the Mayfield Fellows Program here at Stanford and with Tina. I'm Jeff Seibert. I was a Stanford 08 graduate in computer science. Uh, started a company called Increo Solutions with Kimber, and it's basically focused around helping companies innovate, document collaboration, et cetera. So I'm Kimber Lockhart. I was also Stanford CS 08, and also co-founded with Jeff uh, the company Increo Solutions. Um, for context for our, our talk today, Increo Solutions was acquired by a company Box.net. Uh, back in August of 2009. Uh, hi, my name is Josh Reeves. I was uh, Stanford 05 Electrical Engineering, and I was also a Mayfield Fellow. I think all of us carry that <laughs> to our name. And I started a company about two years ago called Unwrap Incorporated. Our main product, Buzzio, is an online marketing platform for small businesses. And I guess one anecdote would be, actually the three of us used to run this seminar when we were undergrads on campus at different points in time. So this is very much a full circle for us to come back and speak. Hi everyone, my name is Clara Shai and I'm the CEO and founder of Hearsay Labs. We develop social media CRM solutions and as Ali mentioned earlier, I'm also the author of The Facebook Era, which is a book about using Facebook, Twitter, and other social media for sales and marketing. I'm Steve Garrity. Um, I was Stanford CS 04 and 05 along with Clara and also along with Clara co-founded Hearsay Labs um, about six or seven months ago. Terrific. I don't think I need that mic. Um, so I have a question. Now here is the plan. The plan is to try to make this feel as though you are sitting here uh, eavesdropping on a dynamic dinner table conversation, okay? Because I know all of these folks really well, and so uh, they will tell me things that they might not tell the rest of the world. So let's pretend that no one else is here, and they're going to reveal all of their secrets. And uh, hopefully everyone will just chime in with their ideas. I want to throw out the first question which is a lot of people start companies for different reasons. Some have some brand new exciting technology that they can't wait to bring to the world. Some have a fabulous team. They go, oh gosh, I can't wait to work with you. Let's figure out what we're going to do. And some people start with a big problem they want to solve. And I'm curious for each of you in your ventures, what was the major motivation for you starting your ventures in the first place? OK, I guess I have the mic, which I managed to turn off. Um, so I actually have a fourth motivation, which I started off with. I wanted to start a company. Um, I was a Mayfield Fellow and just really enjoyed entrepreneurship and thought it would be fun. And so I wanted to start a company, and that was goal number one. Um, then I went off and tried to figure out what that was. And goal number two became starting a company with Clara, who had been a good friend of mine for five or ten years at that point. Um, and then the rest sort of solved itself. 
Yeah, similar to Steve, the reason I came to Stanford in the first place was because when I was in high school, I was 18 years old, I was given this copy of Business Week that talked about Silicon Valley. And my, my eyes lit up, and I felt like, what a, what a wonderful and magical place where anyone with a good idea, uh, with a little bit of luck and a lot of hard work, can, can change the world. And so I've always wanted to start a company. And uh, what, we, what caused us to really look at social media was seeing all the changes that companies like Facebook and Twitter have, have caused us to have in our daily lives. And, and we felt like there was a huge opportunity to bring those same uh, transformations into the business realm. So I definitely agree with the points that uh, Clara and Steve made. I guess one I would add is, in my view, a startup is really one of the best possible environments in the world to learn a ton of information, a ton of new experiences, mostly because you're thrown into a situation where you either have to learn how to do it or you're not going to be successful. And I really had the ambition to try to learn as much as I could. I had just left a startup where I had worked for about three years. Uh, it was doing really well, but I was ready to kind of be in a position where I was a bit more uncomfortable, a bit more chaotic, um, and also a bit more challenged. And so that's why I left uh, Zazzle, was the company I had been at previously, to start the new company. And the first thing, I think, again, what Steve mentioned was, who am I going to work with? And uh, the funny anecdote I mentioned for Stanford students was my co-founder, actually, I met in IHUM freshman year. So for all the techies in the room, there's actually a benefit to IHUM. You <laughs> might even meet your co-founder there. For reference, I also met Jeff in IHUM. <laughs> yeah, IHUM is a humanities class, right? It's a requirement for all the engineering students to take a humanities class. Um, but it starts with people. Wayne and I were really the, the foundation. Um, he had been at Google for three years, and then from there we started um, focusing on a couple different product areas that we were excited about. So Jeff and Kimber, what motivated you? <laughs> wow, I don't know if I can really say that it was, oh my gosh, I want to start a company, or oh, this is a huge problem. It's, it's, it's very much a process. Um, I remember Jeff and I were walking actually just after ETL uh, one day and, and you know, being inspired by all the speakers thinking, wow, it'd be really cool to actually do this. And uh, sort of as time went on, we started thinking together with that being our motivation. And, you know, we wouldn't have started a company unless there was a big problem, a big thing that really interests us. So I can't say that wasn't a huge part of it as well. And I think to go into sort of my personal motivations for like why would I go out and do this, I'm very interested in building products and in building something that people find useful and really helps them. And so Kim and I started meeting and talking and having these brainstorming sessions like what problems could there be and, and more specifically, what product could we build that someone would really fall in love with and, and find that it helped them on a day-to-day -day basis. And then the other aspect was I wanted to do a vast variety of things. Um, I had done a number of internships where I was just coding, where I was just uh, an engineer. And it was great. I enjoyed it. But you're stuck sort of in that one role. And you have to code all day, eight hours a day, or 10 hours a day, or whatever it is. Um, and I wanted to expand beyond that. And I wanted to do some of the business side things and, and be in meetings and talk with customers. And I wanted to participate in the design of the product as well. And so sort of tying those together, having a product, I wanted to basically be able to influence all the different aspects of putting a product together that would help people. That's great. Um, let's see. So when I started, we started Appster, I was actually an undergrad. And um, the story behind Appster was that we spent um, the last six months of my senior year um, kind of developing a prototype for what we thought the future of online news would be. This is in like 2005, 06, uh, and we were seeing the publishing industry collapse. And so our story was... Uh, you know, I think different from these guys in the sense of 
wasn't so much about company motivation. It was more about this problem of what do we do if we don't have really rich, you know, good news experiences on the web. And so um, we actually started pulling together this group of Knight Fellows uh, who are still on campus, this program that brings distinguished journalists uh, to the school. And we started having these sort of roundtable conversations talking about what the future of online news would be. Um, this started getting really exciting towards the end of my senior year. Um, and at the age of 21, after uh, 21, 22, uh, I dropped out of the master's program in computer science and decided after about nine months of deliberation and developing ideas that we should actually go off and do this. Um, when we first started the company, we didn't have um, uh, co-founders. We actually had to pull together our, our founding team. So one of the guys was my bunny world partner, if any of you are CS majors. So uh, we spent a lot of late nights programming until three in the morning and uh, knew we could count on each other. It's a great way of knowing who'd make a good co-founder. And then the third guy that we brought in uh, was Jesse, who is uh, uh, known as one of the most talented guys in the CS department. And we literally approached him. He was not one of our, our sort of in our friend network. Um, and uh, sort of just convinced him, this is something that's going to change the world. You really have to join in on this. And he agreed. And uh, that's how we got started. And actually, I, I moved to Argentina for the first four months of the startup. And I don't have to talk all about that now. But um, what's interesting about that part of the story is that um, we put together our founding team, and then right after that, we had I had to convince these guys that we're still going to go off and do this. I'm just going to move to Argentina for four months. So hey, there's, there's all sorts of different ways in which people start companies, and sort of the commitment levels, and how you you know know if you're committing all the way or partly, or if some people drop off, or it's four co-founders versus two co-founders. So. I'll Spur those is hopefully more conversations with that. Great. Well, several of you started your companies while you were students. Is this a good idea? A bad idea? Would you do it again? I mean, I'm imagining there's a little bit of tension there. I know I have students come to my office all the time saying, I got an idea. Should I drop out of school? You know, should I finish? How does, it, how does that work? Yeah, so Kim and I started talking about the ideas that became in Creo actually halfway through our junior year um, and built the first prototype for the company in the CS software project class. Um, so it's sort of a senior project class for the CS department. You have to come in with a group together and something you want to write, and you have the 10 weeks to do it. Um, and so we came in with this idea, and we're like, okay, we're going to try this out in these 10 weeks. And we did put together a solid prototype. It wasn't super functional, but it had some basic attributes. Um, and to our, actually, great surprise, we ended up winning the competition in that class. And so that made us step back and think, well, okay, maybe this is more interesting than just a prototype. Maybe we should spend more time on this. Um, so we spent that summer thinking about the idea and, and more the business side of it. Okay, how could we take this and turn it into a business? How could we actually monetize this? What need are we really solving for people? Um, and so kept brainstorming through senior year, and by about winter quarter of our senior year, we were working probably most days on it. So. Spring quarter senior year, we worked full-time on Creo <laughs> and took classes. You can imagine what happened to each and every one of our grades, our GPAs, last quarter senior year. Uh, you know, there, there's pros and cons to doing something while you're still in school. One of the huge pros is that you have so many resources at your fingertips right now. Um, any of the ETL speakers that come in here every single week, you can tap into that network. Um, some of the, but there's also, you know, there's negatives. Um, some of these guys were talking about how they were Mayfield Fellows their junior or senior years um, here at Stanford. And because I started in Creo, I had to give up that very wonderful opportunity. So, you know, is there a right time to start your company as far as going through school? You want to make sure that you get as much 
out of just doing school as a student as you can, but also if the time is right for your opportunity and the time is right for your team, I say go for it. Tristan wants to butt in. Oh, what? <laughs> Didn't necessarily want to butt in, but um, what's an interesting anecdote is that these guys did, um, started in Creo uh, for their senior senior project and they won the award. What's interesting is I did our, our it was then our, our news project for our senior project, and we didn't get recognized at all. And I thought it'd be interesting to bring that up because that could have been interpreted as a, a failure. Like, why isn't this interesting enough that, you know, if it's going to be a company, shouldn't it be interesting enough that you would receive some sort of recognition during this sort of, like, final project fair? And we got none. And I remember thinking, but this is so cool. Like, this is, this is really so important. Like, why isn't this being recognized? And um, it took persistence, basically, to kind of keep thinking about the ideas. That was the end of spring quarter 2006. And so over the, over the summer of 2007, we talked about the ideas more. I was talking to the Knight Fellows. And um, it, I was actually still doing the Mayfield Fellows program. I still had a, a, the last quarter of Mayfield left and the first quarter of my master's. Um, and I, I had to continue on to that. Um, but I was sort of doing both at once. I was living life as a Mayfield Fellow, doing an internship at Wikia at the time, and going to classes with Tom and Tina. At the same time, I lived in a different life, and I was uh, working with uh, our co-founders and trying to develop the idea. So it was actually, it, it was, you know, so clearly a business idea and something that we felt so comfortable with that we could actually make the leap. And it wasn't until um, one of the Knight Fellows flew uh, me out to the to Dallas, Texas, to meet with the executive team of the Dallas Morning News, um, just as she had sort of randomly convinced her boss to do this, and. Um, through that meeting came another meeting with the former editor of Newsweek, and then through that meeting came flying out to D.C. to meet with the Washington Post, and then through that meeting came, you know, uh, basically enough, enough feedback that this was something really interesting that as a first quarter into my master's degree with a full year and a half left, it was sort of like, well, I've got enough feedback, I've got enough sort of potential here that now I feel comfortable dropping out and doing it. And also it felt right at the time, it felt like, you know, I wasn't as excited about the master's degree, and this helped, this felt like something that uh, needed to exist, that could exist right now. And like, what are we waiting for? So cool. Sorry. So I want to just ask Stephen Clara because you know you guys are a perfect example. You started, you met each other. You said, you know what, we're in the right place at the right time, and we both want to go do this. And you made a point of having a partnership. And all of you have teams that have partners. And I want to start with you with this sort of question of how important is it to have a partner? And how do you divide the roles? And how have those roles changed? And, you know, is it always a good thing to have someone that you have to sort of get buy-in from? I think that's a great question. I mean, one thing just to add to the previous conversation is that even though the rest of us may not have started our companies while we were at Stanford, it's those relationships that we formed early on, whether it was an IHUM or in Mayfield Fellows or whatever, that really served us well in this partnership and finding the person that you can really trust to start a company with. And uh, so, you know, the timing worked out for Steve and I, but we also had, had uh, talked early on about, you know, who would do what. And after college, although we were both undergrad and master's CS here, I kind of went more of the business route, and Steve stayed more technical. So we kind of decided that Steve would own all the technology, and I would own all the sales and marketing. And we still, uh, it's, it's helpful because we can both do everything, and so we like to run a lot of things past each other. But it's nice to have that focus and know that I can always count on Steve 
to, to get that product done, and he can always count on me, hopefully, knock on wood, to, to get the sale done. Well, I think an important thing to bring up here for people who don't know you is that you spent several years at Salesforce, yes. and Steve, you spent a bunch of years at Microsoft. So you got out of school and went to these big companies, and I think you both knew that at some point you wanted to start your own venture, but wanted to go learn on someone else's nickel, you know, and wait until you had the right idea or the right time and felt the right confidence to go start something. Is that right? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, after college, I spent a couple years at Google, and then I was at Salesforce.com, and both are incredible companies. A lot of entrepreneurs within those companies. And uh, I think I'm, I'm actually pretty risk-averse as entrepreneurs go. And for me, the path to entrepreneurship was pretty indirect. So three years into working at Salesforce, I created this side project. It was an integration between Facebook and Salesforce. And it was a piece of technology that became really popular. It was just a little weekend project that I worked on uh, over the course of a month. And that actually led to my book because it was the first business application on Facebook and there was a lot of buzz about that. And so through the course of writing the book, I realized that this is a huge opportunity, this being social media and marketing and business. And it was through the book and getting connected with a lot of big companies, which have now become our customers, that I, I think I got the courage to really leave and start my own thing. I think that's totally true, and, and like Claire said earlier, um, in terms of being able to count on her to bring in the sales and marketing, she's actually selling faster than I can build the product, and so I hesitate to tell her to stop selling, but at the same time, I'm kind of like, slow down, slow down. Can I tell her embarrassing story? Uh, sure, of course you have to tell her. Yes, I don't know what this is. So we'll both be surprised. We'll see. Um, hopefully this is okay. Um, so one of the things that we found it really funny over the course of raising, uh, like starting the company, kind of working with our attorneys, raising money and everything else. Oh, that one. Um, yeah. All right. So um, Claire and I have known each other for a long time, and evidently we just appear very comfortable with each other. Every single one of our investors and potential investors, our attorney, um, a couple of prospective employer employees or employers um, have asked us if we're dating or if we're married. And it's not even usually are you, it's usually you are, right? And we're not, and we never have. And Clara has a rather serious boyfriend, um, who's a good friend of mine. And so the question is particularly awkward when it's asked in front of him. <laughs> but I think it's a testament to kind of our partnership, or I'd like to think it is, that um, we appear that comfortable and we can kind of trust each other that much. And we do, and we, we bicker like a married couple a lot of the time. Um, and I think it works really well because we can, we can play off each other. Um, and we can also do this interesting thing where we have very opposite tendencies in certain cases. And so we do run a lot of decisions past each other, even in kind of the areas that we normally are responsible for, because it turns out that our instincts, when we meet in the middle, are, are usually right. If it's just one of us or just the other one, we'll sometimes be off one way or the other. When we talk about both, we end up kind of in a really nice place. Great. So you, did you pick each other because you knew you had complementary skills and complementary temperaments and complementary points of view? Or did that just work out that way? It just worked out. I'll be honest, I picked Steve because we were programming partners in a bunch of classes, including compilers. And I've never seen anyone who can code like him. <laughs> so so let's, let's just go on to the other group teams to hear about you know, the partnerships. Can I just say something nice about Clara first? Oh, we're going to say, okay. <laughs> I was just going to say I picked Clara because I thought she, sort of, she had the book and this absolutely fantastic idea I couldn't wait to work on, and I've never seen anybody sell quite like Clara. <laughs> Great. Mutual admiration. Wonderful. Yeah, so I, I can add one thing on the... Um, so my co-founder is, is a guy, so we don't get as much the question. It's the very end. No. He's a great person, but he also has, <laughs> <laughs> he also has a serious girlfriend. <laughs> but are you available? <laughs> 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 we have to have here, Josh. <laughs> 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 I 
recently started dating. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that. We're going to have a wine. Exactly, okay. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Um, what I would say is, I mean, Wayne and I have actually talked quite a bit about the analogies of our relationship to like a married couple. And we always say the foundation of us working together is trust and transparency. And what that means for us is if there's any issue or problem, I mean, we can always talk about it. Um, we can always, you know, ask, so you said this, what do you actually mean by that? And you really want to look at the relationship almost in the same way as you would look at like marrying someone. It's really important for the co-founders to be able to communicate really well to also trust each other because you're going to be relying on each other and like expecting them to do certain things that you'd want to do yourself, especially if you're kind of a typical Stanford student that thinks you can do everything on your own. And that's one of the biggest and most important things for a startup is you have to be able to trust each other to get it done and also to you know, accept whatever approach they might take. So um, yeah, it's, I can't overemphasize how much you want to make sure you choose a good co-founder. So, you know, the interesting thing here is that it means that picking a co-founder or identifying people who might be potential co-founders when you're a student is actually a huge advantage because you get to see people sort of in the wild. You get to see how they react, how they learn, how they, how they present uh, in a situation that isn't a typical interview situation. So, Jeff and Kimber, I mean, how do you guys work as, as partners? So... I was just going to add, one of the interesting side effects of picking a co-founder is that you're forever linked. At Box, people ask me where Jeff is. <laughs> I have no idea where Jeff is. I don't follow him around. Um, but in all seriousness, the dating question came up a lot for us, too. And it's actually really important to communicate that correctly to um, investors. It can be an advantage. It can be a liability to you know, start a, a company with someone you're involved with. Fortunately, Jeff and I never had to deal with it because we never were involved. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I would say most investors, at least from our experience, were afraid of the possibility. They take it as a huge liability for the company because then, let's say, you like break up or something, then what's going to happen to the company? Um, and so most of them won't invest if that's the case. So how do you work together? How, how, oh. how complementary are you? I think I, it's amazing the similarities. I think it's the same way. We both have the tendencies where we, we talk about everything and to the point of even like if we're trying to send out a really important email to a partner, one of us will draft the email, the other one will like finish it and send it so that it's sort of between and a balance. And I think it has worked out amazingly well. Um, we always seem to end up with something better than either of us had originally. Um, and so I think it is important no matter who your co-founder is, Pick someone that complements your skill set. So if you're really strong, let's say you're extremely analytical, maybe pick someone who thinks a bit bigger, broader picture and more trends. Um, again, the technology versus the business side works very well. Uh, we had the same sort of workout where I did most of the technology, Kimber did most of the business stuff. Um, and so, yeah. Do you sign all of your emails with both names? We found that emerging. Yeah, we've done that quite a bit. I always send my emails Clara and Steve. Yep. Clara always sends her emails Steve and Clara. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we ended up moving away from that just a little bit for appearances' sake at the end. So one or the other of us takes, <laughs> takes ownership of the email. But you can bet yeah. if it um, came out of my inbox while I was at Increo, uh, generally he took a look at it. Great. So Tristan, you had three founders of your company. Now that's got to be interesting. Three is often a challenging number, especially with decision making. How did that work? Well, it's interesting. So um, there were sort of two original core founders that were involved in those early conversations with the Knight Fellows. And then we brought on um, our third co-founder 
like a little bit later. So he was actually not, uh, he was a co-founder, but he came on like about six months to nine months later than, than the original uh, other co-founder. Um, but um, I think we complemented ourselves well. What's interesting about Apsher and the co-founders is that we were actually all technical. So all of us were computer science majors. Um, uh, not one of us had uh, a ton of experience in, say, business or marketing or sales. All of us were fundamentally technical. Um, but we did have diverse skill sets. So, um, uh, for example, when we were starting the company, a lot of what we were doing had to do with the online advertising industry. And as naive as it sounds, none of us had any clue how the online ad, ad industry worked. Um, but one interesting strength that we leveraged is my co-founder, John Saar, who is a, a C, uh, our CTO and he was a PhD at Stanford in Distributed Systems. Um, he's a voracious reader. He's the fastest reader I have ever met in my entire life. He can consume information faster than anybody. So. If you want to know a lot about something you don't understand, um, <laughs> I delegated some of that. We, we all collectively as a group delegated some of that, um, those early tasks around business planning and uh, technical planning and actually like online advertising planning and doing the spreadsheets was actually John, who's a CTO and distributed systems PhD. Um, and then I focused more on UI design and um, core technology, how are you going to sell it, and starting to do more networking with our publishing partners like the Washington Post. Um, and then Jesse, who is our, our third co-founder, um, uh, is, is really just a hardcore, rock-solid, Bob, like great engineer, like the best engineer you've ever met. And so, um, you know, I think it's interesting because I think our company DNA is very much technical, but we also knew the time that we were making, we are building a technology company. Um, but we still found a way to complement our, our, our skill sets, uh, I think, in, in that way. Just one point I'd like to add. Uh, I think it's very important, that, and this has come out with everyone, that yes, we're sort of going back and forth and running things by people, but the importance is that who everyone on your team, you have to trust 100%. And so if you're not able to review something, like say they're on a plane or they're off on a business trip or whatever, that you, the whole team, trust the entire rest of the team to do it correctly. Um, and so you want to find the very best people you can, and ideally that you've worked with before so that you can trust them. The other important notion on co-founders is it's fluid. Uh, they talked about how there were two co-founders, and then there were three. For us, we've had anywhere between two and five co-founders over the course of, mm -hmm. of Encreo. And so people will come and, and go, and maybe they'll yeah. join the team, and you'll decide later that you know they're splitting a huge amount of their responsibility and should be a co-founder. It's okay. It happens. Um, sometimes co-founders nice to be able to bring good people on your team. Say, hey, join us. You can be a co-founder. Um, just don't get too wrapped up in what's a co-founder, what's not. What really matters is people's contributions. So all of you have decided to take venture capital money. Now, here we are in Silicon Valley where that's very common and that's sort of the uh, viewed as sort of the, the script to follow. But if you look at statistics, most companies are not founded with VC money. I mean, I think in the US it's like 2%. And I think probably a lot of people who are in this area would be shocked that only 2% of companies that get founded actually take venture capital money. All of you chose to go this route as opposed to bootstrapping and using you know, customer money to fund your businesses. Why did you do that? Who wants to jump in? Yeah, actually, well, I can correct you slightly. So for at least, so we're actually fully bootstrapped still. Um, and we did that and for a very, very specific reason. So I don't know if everyone should know what bootstrap means. Basically, we're using uh, money from operations, cash flow, and or savings to fund the company. So we were in a position where our product was actually making money almost from day one. 
And so we actually didn't really need to raise capital. Uh, and we really, really appreciated that flexibility. So I think one lesson for everyone to learn is you really need to go into the fundraising process knowing what, why you want to raise money and what you hope to do with it. And a lot of times companies will go and raise money right off the bat with the expectation that that's like a really big success metric to feel like you're going in the right direction. And sometimes it'll be too soon. So for us, you know, having six months at the very beginning of really just pure incubation, trying lots of projects, trying this, trying that, seeing what worked, building it, launching it the next day, improving it based on feedback, that flexibility we might not have had if we had raised money from investors with a specific idea, and then we were like, we want to change it, they would kind of freak out about that. So there's kind of a balance there in terms of how long you want to stay bootstrapped, and we really, really appreciated that flexibility early on. Uh, in our view, when you want to raise money, it's really around how to scale the company. You have a good idea, the company's working, you have some profit, hopefully, and you want to really expand and reach the next level, not just in a, in a growth cycle, but also in a, in a step change jump. And in, in, that, in that sense, money is really good. You speed up that process. Great point of view. So let's hear a counterpoint. Well, I, I couldn't agree more with Josh. I mean, Stephen and I waited six months before we even thought about raising money. And Josh is right. In the beginning, you don't know exactly what you're going to do. You come up with a million ideas, and then you end up going with one, and then you end up changing it a few weeks later or a few months later. And so for us, we did a lot of prototyping. We did a lot of, of talking to who our potential users would be. And we finally came up with a product. And we said, okay, well, we, we don't want to look someone in the eye and ask them to write us a check until we know that this thing works and we know that this is something that people will actually want and that they'll pay for and they'll use. And so our criteria really was about having paying customers and real market validation before we would even pitch to, to even an angel, uh, much less a VC. And ultimately, you know, we talked about, you know, is this a lifestyle business? Can this just be a single, a double, a triple? Well, we'd be happy having that. And we realized that you know, we could, but this is actually a much bigger opportunity. And we had stumbled upon something that people really love to do, love to use, and something that's really changing people's businesses in their, in their lives. And so I'd say the primary motivator for us ultimately to raise money was that our customers demanded these features and they wanted these things to be built. They told us that they would pay us. They were already paying us. And so we, we knew that we needed to accelerate the product development cycle to give them what they wanted to achieve their business goals. But why did you take VC money? I mean, you could have taken out a loan. You could have borrowed more money. I mean, you did make the decision, though, to go the VC route. Yeah, well, I would say that in terms of the amount of money we raised, we really wanted to, to put, all our, uh, put all our eggs in one basket and, and put a big bet on this. And we, and we we've gotten enough validation that we felt comfortable doing that. The other thing was that we found the venture partner that we went with provides a lot of value in terms of they've done this before, they're really experienced, they have a lot of great connections, and a lot of the areas where Steve and I didn't necessarily have experience or connections, they've really been able to step up even in the, in the few short weeks where uh, we've started working with them. Anyone want to chime in with a different point of view? Yeah. Well, I had one really quick yeah. tangent would be um, if you guys are focused or interested in the web space, you know, a big shift in the last several years is that you actually don't really need a lot of capital to prototype something. So if you think about, you know, productivity tools like Google Apps or Gmail, all the different things that are available now through open source technologies, the actual cost barrier to go build something and kind of test an idea is much, much lower than it was in like the last couple cycles of the web boom, which means you actually don't need to kind of go through that process of fundraising. Because fundraising does take time away from necessarily product development. And so you want to make sure if you're focused on the web that you can make the most of that. So we ended up raising money actually before we graduated our senior year. And so you could say it was both very early, but it also wasn't really because we had been working on 
projects, as I said, for about a year before that. And so at that point, we had a very solid idea of what we wanted to do and what we were pitching to them. Um, it was early, though, in the sense that we didn't have paying customers at that point. One of the reasons we did decide to go raise money from VC, and we actually raised money from Draper Fisher Jurvetson, who <coughs> sponsors this, <laughs> um, is that we had, we had a lot of solid connections to VC firms actually through ETL itself, um, and then also through the Mayfield program, and felt because we were targeting companies, we wanted to do basically enterprise innovation software, that in order to approach them and sell that, we wanted to have someone behind us, someone backing us to give us some level of credibility in the space. And we felt, I don't know if this is true or not, but we felt that a VC firm would provide a bit more name recognition than would an angel. Um, and so that definitely helped us uh, in one case for sure, but who knows if it would have been the same otherwise. Yeah, in the end, the answer is kind of, <laughs> was it helpful to have that name behind us? Certainly. Was it instrumental in being able to negotiate the uh, deals for purchase with the companies we were negotiating with when we were uh, considering being acquired? Absolutely. Was it necessarily critical for us to have gotten business customers? I can't tell you that. Um, i trying to think of what I can tell you. So we, we raised um, $500,000 of uh, basically <coughs> angel money. Um, one thing that's interesting about who we raised from is it actually came from the father of a friend of mine from Stanford who was an angel investor and had done a number of companies himself, was an entrepreneur, was a VP at SGI, um, and was a VC at Warburg Pincus, which is a large private equity firm. And um, uh, he basically threw the, I think that, that speaks to the credibility of the Stanford network where his daughter thought very highly of our team. And um, that basically gave him what he needed uh, to invest in the company and trust us early on and let us raise uh, the amount of money that we raised. Um, it took us a month, I think Josh's point about it takes, it takes time to fundraise. Um, when we started, it took about a month to set up all the meetings. Um, and Bo, who is our, our angel investor, uh, actually set up uh, meetings with, I mean, the president of AMD, the CEO of VMware, who actually invested in the company, Paul Moritz, um, the, the family behind the Boston Globe, the Taylor family, they invested in the company. It took a month to set up all those meetings, and then in one week, we just sort of like, Phone call after phone call after phone call was just nothing but phone calls for a week. Uh, and we raised our angel round on a convertible note. Uh, we can talk more about those financial instruments if you guys are interested. Um, and then that was enough credibility. We thought we needed that because we really needed to, we were a technology company. So we had a lot of technology to build. We needed to hire more engineers. We needed to pay our interns. We actually uh, brought on our founding interns uh, under the promise that we would pay them, having absolutely no idea if we actually would be able to do so. Um, so for the first three weeks, we actually paid them with our sort of loan them money from our own bank accounts, and then we actually happened to raise our, our angel money after that. Um, and then uh, after the first year, we accumulated the Washington Post and, and New York Times and, and Reuters as customers, and that was enough basis to raise our Series A of three and a half million from Clearstone Venture Partners. Um, and um, the, uh, um, i trying to think of what I can tell you about that, but I'm happy to talk more about yeah. the financial Well, let me, what I think is interesting here is, Tristan, you're basically saying, we needed money at the beginning to pay our employees, yeah. right? I mean, and Kimber and Jeff, you're saying, we got money because we felt it was going to give us credibility with the customers we wanted. And then, um, you know, Stephen and Clara, you're saying, we raised money because we basically felt we needed that investment of cash to hit, be able to sort of put all these resources so we could hit the ball out of the park. Yeah, that's exactly right. I was just going to echo what Josh said, which is there aren't a lot of resources required to get going. Um, up to whatever, New Year's, our uh, OPEX was on the order of $40 a month 
um, for our service. And we had active customers and paying customers and everything, so we were cash flow positive in a way. Um, <laughs> we were paying ourselves, so it's hard to say we were really cash flow positive. But we were certainly covering OpEx and everything else. And you don't need a lot to prototype it. And it's all open source, and it's all easy, and you know, you've got a technical team, and you're ready to go. Um, and I think the real reason for us was, was very strategic, and it was sort of hitting the gas on the growth and saying, like, this is a real place we need to be. There's a huge advantage to going fast. And so let's pour some gasoline on the fire, and it's going to go boom. And we hope it goes boom in the right direction. So I have tons more questions, but I'm going to ask just one more or maybe two if I get inspired. But I'm going to open up to the audience. And so I want you to think about the questions that you might want to ask these folks. So one of the um, issues when you get big investors like this is that um, they then have the power later to maybe replace you. And um, I'm curious how you would feel if down the line, I mean, these are your babies, your companies. If the you know, venture capitalists, the big investors came in and said, you know what, we'd like to bring in a professional CEO, how would you feel about that? So we talked about this a lot um, during our round and basically came to the conclusion that they would only do that if we weren't doing well, and so we just needed to do well. So, I mean, we made a bet. Like, we talked about it, and it was, it was a conscious decision, and we just made a bet that we could do it. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it's always a risk that you take, but I think going through the incorporation process, and we have really great lawyers working with uh, Patrick Poland at Latham and Watkins, he helped us understand that when you start a company, it's a separate entity. And although it is your baby, it's, it's going to grow up, and it might go on and do its own thing, and it might not like you. So hopefully that doesn't happen. Uh, but we also have, you know, we're, we're very early, and, and we're just closing this round, and we have a number of advisors and investors in the round, and it's my personal goal as a CEO to make sure that we have really clear lines of communication, and that when something goes wrong, they're not finding, about it, finding out about it six months after the fact, or learning about it for the first time at a board meeting. I want to be able to tell them right away in real time and hopefully work with them and grow into, uh, into that role. Actually, I wanted to make one quick statement on kind of people dynamic in the company. Um, so I, through the Mayfield Fellows Program, and even being at Stanford, you get a lot of exposure to startups. I was always surprised by how many startups I felt failed because of, even if they had a great product and were in an interesting market, people issues around egos or kind of land grabs as the company grows, who's responsible for what, what you're going to control, what you're going to own. And that really bothered me because you would think everyone would be aligned around wanting to make the company successful. So a lot of this question goes to how do you connect what's best for the company versus what might be your personal bias to be like, I want to be CEO for the entire growth of this organization. And so as long as you can really connect with people in the company and also maintain that thought that you're here to make this, this product, which is solving a problem in the world, as successful as possible, and to solve it for as many as people as possible, I think you don't face that issue quite as much. And it's something you have to remind yourself about, because your bias might be to kind of make it personal and be like, why am I not doing this personally myself? Getting acquired is not unlike bringing in someone over you as CEO. Um, at Increo, you know, we had the full sort of range of decision making. And, you know, when we became part of Box, we became part of a much significantly larger organization. Box is about 70 people right now, um, where <coughs> decisions go through more than just you and your co-founder. Um, but what we really wanted for Encreo was just like what any parent wants for their child, for it to have every possible chance at success that it could. And for me at least, uh, bringing Encreo under the wing of, the, of Box was the best thing we could have done to achieve those big, hairy 
audacious <laughs> goals that we had for this company. Another thing I would touch on is the reputation of the firm you choose money from because if you don't take outside investment, then there's really no one who can kick you out of your own company. So it's, re it's really that process that brings about this problem. And I, so to take a step back, I would say also that, again, it's probably not a problem because you, you should be interested in the company succeeding, not yourself running it forever. But just to think about that aspect of it, there are investors who have different reputations regarding they invest in the team themselves versus they're investing in the idea and they're going to do whatever it takes with whoever they need to um, in order to make that idea successful. And so, I mean, DFJ was fantastic with us. We changed directions quite a bit, as I'm sure most of the startups here have and will. Um, and they were always very supportive and they really wanted to see what we could figure out. Um, and so that was fantastic. But yeah, I think it's just look at, talk with other startups who have raised money from that same firm and see what their opinion of the firm is and how hands-on or hands-off or flexible the different firms are. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, there's a website called The Funded, where if you are looking for funding for venture capitalists, uh, they, basically it's a like Yelp for venture capitalists. Um, so it basically has a reviews for each individual partner, the firm, what the reputation is. Sequoia is known for investing more in the market. Um, RBCs back teams. Um, in our case, it was interesting, at least my, my personal case, uh, being CEO of the company, I remember when we were first raising funding, um, again, I, we were invested in the, by the, the father of a friend of mine from Stanford. So that credibility went a long way, being the 22 years old, are you going to trust a person who's 22, who doesn't have business experience, to be the CEO of a company? Um, it's, a, it's a really important question. And there were people that, when we first started pitching Series A investors, I think were apprehensive about that. Um, how do you know that the person you're investing in is, is mature enough uh, and has the knowledge and has the sort of self-awareness to know when they want to, you know, when they don't have the information they don't know, to go get it? Um, there, there's a lot of really important questions for that. Again, I think in our case, twice it came down to reputation because when we finally were uh, got our Series A funding from Clearstone, um, that that investment happened and the, value, and the sort of I think the success in our minds came from uh, that VC, our VC, had invested in another company where one of my friends from Stanford, uh, who was one year before me, JT Batson, uh, had made a really strong recommendation again saying, this team is really great and you don't want to regret missing out on this deal. And that's what he told our, our VC. Um, and, uh, and that's, I think, what led to, to the investment. Um, that said, I think I agree with everything these guys have said, that um, you have to be, it, it's about making the company successful. That's the thing that matters most. If you're not best equipped to make that happen, that should be pretty obvious after a while. Um, I think also in our case, the type of, the type of company that you're building really matters. Um, could Apple Computer build the iPhone without Steve Jobs? You know, uh, there's, in some cases, I think in innovation-driven companies that are product companies, uh, the type of CEO, sometimes it's the CEO that sort of can be the one making it possible to develop that kind of innovative product. Um, I don't want to claim that in any sort of egotistical way, but I think in the kind of venture that we're creating, it's, it's all about a very innovative new way of accessing information. It's, it's something that no one's ever done before. It takes a design that's never been designed. Um, I think the VCs and uh, our board believe that that you know, exists within our, our founding team. So what, you know, in this specific example, could you... You can't just swap out sort of Steve, you know, not Steve Jobs, but like you can't just swap out, you know, the person who's responsible for the fundamental idea to go out and build it um, in this specific type of company. In different types of companies, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit different, so I'd say that.
There's a really exciting flip side to that, too. And that flip side is, what if you don't want to be CEO of this company with this great new technology that you came up with? You don't necessarily have to be. Yes, maybe you're the driving force moving the company forward. Maybe you assemble a great team of people to get started. But the Valley is so full of these wonderful resources that as you build your team, it's up to you to determine what <coughs> structure it takes. So just kind of keep in mind that, you know, there are days when I was CEO of Encryo that I, you know, the last thing I wanted to be at that very moment was CEO of Encryo. <laughs> I thought that would wear off after a while. You know, you finally got the big deal closed. You finally made, got the product out by the deadline. But, you know, being CEO of a tiny little startup company is a job that some people are going to like and some people aren't. But no matter how you feel, you can play a huge role in getting this company off the ground. Really good point of view. Yeah. Um, as you know, um, many of you know in the audience, there's a course that wraps around this course. It's called The Spirit of Entrepreneurship. And those students get the chance to ask the first question. Uh, from the audience. So Steve Blank is not here, so he sent me questions. So I have them here on my iPhone. If you look like, you probably thought I was reading my email during this talk, but I'm not. I was looking up Steve Blank's questions. And the first question that I want to ask from them, and then I'm going to open to the audience, is what's the biggest obstacle that you faced as young entrepreneurs that older, more experienced entrepreneurs might not have faced? So who wants to chime in? I can start. Um, so, yeah, one really clear response comes to mind. I think, um, and it kind of stems, too, to what you learn on campus versus what you learn while working. So I had worked at a company for three years after graduating before starting the new company. Um, so the answer to me would be focus. How you prioritize, how you're going to spend your time to go achieve the business opportunity you've identified. And I think, as someone that's younger, I'm leveraging mostly my experience at Zazzle in making that decision, mentors I've talked to, advisors I've talked to, but I can also very clearly see how more experience that I have, like let's say 10 years in the future, I'll have so much more of a wealth of knowledge to, to do that prioritization, to have that focus, because that's the biggest challenge that I identify with my startup, is we have so many ideas, so many things to do, it's kind of a constant, and it's fun, uh, daily challenge to figure out, given this many hours, what are we going to go do to have the most impact with our time? Because we have limited resources. And I, I just want to get better at that. I know I'm going to get better at it. And I see people that are older than me that are really good at it. And um, you know, that's, that's what I would say. Well, I would flip the question and say, I think there's tremendous advantages to being younger. Because sometimes, I mean, just both in terms of where we are in our lives and how much time we can spend on a company, uh, all the way to the way that we think, and how we really, I think we think out of the box because we haven't been indoctrinated for that long, uh, for, for some of these guys at all. Uh, and I think that can be really powerful when you're an entrepreneur because you are creating something that no one else has ever thought of before. And you're able to do that because you haven't, you haven't studied as much or you haven't been told that this is the way that things are. I was going to do exactly the same thing and flip it. And I'll add one word again to Claire's list, which is it turns out to be an interesting negotiating strategy and lets you kind of open a lot of questions that you couldn't otherwise, which is, hey, this is my first time. Can you explain these terms to me? That sounds wrong. That sounds wrong. Like, why do we need that? Um, and it becomes sort of a very easy way to have conversations. Um, that It's totally reasonable. They, I mean, you're not giving anything away. They know you're young. They know you're, you're a first-time entrepreneur. And you can say, you know, hey, I just think we should rethink this from kind of first principles. And it often leads to, like, a very interesting, different discussion. 
Um, I think obviously Josh's point is totally true that you're missing a lot of experience and there's value to that. Um, we've been lucky enough to find some really great advisors that have added a lot of that. So a few months into Increo, when I was learning accounting and insurance and all of those other fun things that you need to know in order to run a company that, as a computer science major at Stanford, albeit one that took a lot of business classes, you don't know. Um, it was right in there that I, I heard, and I can't remember who exactly um, told me this, but somebody said, you know, there's a lot of skills that you don't necessarily have that are necessary to becoming an entrepreneur. But do you think that those people that are older than you, that are quit quitting the job that they have to become an entrepreneur, have done all of those different things necessary to start a company in any of their roles in the past? And no, nobody except entrepreneurs do the full set of things required to start a company. Nobody has that whole skill set. So yes, you may be learning things you don't know. You may be forced to pull out QuickBooks and figure out how to do month-by-month subscription-based accounting in two hours. <laughs> but I can bet, bet you that anybody else who's getting into that industry or that field for the first time is going to have similar challenges. So I want to open it. Oh, did you want to add something? I want to open it up since we only have 10 more minutes left to uh, some questions. So do you have a question? Yeah. Um, so it, it seems like uh, actually all of you are, are techies. Um, if I remember correctly, it's five CS and one double E. Um, and so do you have any um, experiences or like is it, would you say it's better to or could you maybe compare contrast doing a computer science major versus doing maybe economics or MSNE or even going on and getting an MBA? So I'm going to repeat it for the audience. Um, all of you are uh, CS and EE majors. Uh, do you think that was a great path, or would you have recommended something else to get you set up, you know, like economics or some other area to, to prepare you for this? So I would look at it from two different ways. If you are definitely more interested or you think you are better or particularly poor at engineering, then I would let that guide your judgment rather than what would be the best in order to do a startup. But if you're truthfully trying to decide between the two, I personally, and of course my view is biased, I would tend towards engineering only because a lot of friends of mine also are trying to do startups and they weren't engineers and they are not as able to get quite as far because they're not able to prototype it without bringing in someone. And so if you really are choosing between the two areas, the benefit to engineering is that you can prototype your own ideas and quickly discard and as I think Tina likes to say, fail very rapidly and try it out and decide, okay, this is terrible, no one's ever going to use that, um, before you start bringing in other people and making it a much bigger deal. So I'd say that's one thing to consider. So a couple thoughts. One is you don't have to choose. I actually studied both CS and Econ as an undergrad here, and then I ended up co-terming in CS. And I really enjoyed the perspective that provided me. Um, after Stanford and after working at Google, I actually went to Oxford and went, got another master's degree in technology policy. I think that helped me too because it helped me be less of a geek and think more like normal people, which is who we're selling to right now, and try to explain really technical terms and really new technologies in a way that someone like my mother could understand. And I think that for a lot of startups, I mean, it depends on who your audience is or who you're selling to, that can be tremendously valuable. Um, but what I will say is, you know, I agree with Jeff, a little secret when you're starting a company, 
is that it's extraordinarily difficult to hire engineers because they're in extremely high demand. So if you're an engineer yourself, then you can just hire yourself and just and start working on things right away, and nothing is holding you back. And a quick interjection that one of my actually mentors during the Mayfield program told me um, that an engineering degree is a great way to call BS. And so it's really hard. It's, it's hard to hire engineers regardless. It's doubly hard to hire engineers if you're not an engineer because you have no way of deciding if they're any good or not. Right? You can do reference checks, but it's really hard to ask those questions. So, I mean, yeah, do I think you have an advantage with an engineering degree? Yes. But can you add a lot of value and do interesting stuff with, with I shouldn't use the word just here, with an economics degree? Um, <laughs> I apologize. Um, with an economics degree? Of course, right? And so like, I always like to give the example of Clara, um, who has two computer science degrees and still does almost entirely non-technical work for a company and has brought in all of our revenue so far, um, the original idea, and you know, <coughs> easily half of the value that we've created as a company. Right? And so now it's obviously it's really nice to have somebody technical to bounce ideas off of when I want to talk about it or we're pitching the company and saying we have two technical co-founders. Um, but there's a whole bunch of value to be added outside of the technology. It's just I think you do need engineers on the core team or it's really hard to bring on more engineers. But how many of you have gotten the email from a, you know, a business school student saying, I have this great idea, I just need to hire engineers. And there's a, there's a million of them and they're great and they probably do have really great ideas. It's just really hard to, like Claire said, hire those engineers. One important thing, though, to keep in mind is if you're an entirely engineering team from the get-go, you need someone to specialize in not engineering stuff. Otherwise, you will build products and more products and more products and maybe try them by a few customers, but you do not have the opportunity to do a real customer-driven development cycle. You do not have the opportunity to focus on sales and support and all of the other aspects. So one of the things we did reasonably early on, probably not early on enough, was take me out of engineering and make me totally on the business side. So if you have a team of engineers, make sure that you have at least someone who can come off and start to take care of the business aspects and really getting things done. Great. Do we have another question? Right, back and back. So about customer development in a, a, a uh, a web-based company, how do you find out what, how do you interview the customers? I mean, do you go to chat rooms or do you go to blogs or do you go talk to people in restaurants and bars or how do you, how do you meet real people as opposed to just some... So the question device? is, how do you find customers? Do you go meet them in bars? <laughs> so, so our customers are uh, uh, publishers, so we have like, you know, Big, big brands like New York Times, Washington Post, um, you know, and we also, our customers are simultaneously end users, so people who just browse the internet. Um, so I think we do two things. We do user tests regularly, so we try to bring in users from Craigslist, we invite people in, we, we pay them, we give them Jamba Juice cards, and we get feedback on the product. Um, and then in terms of publishers, I'd say we don't do as much as we would like, um, in part because during our product development cycles, we're a little bit more secretive about what we're doing until we're ready to go out the door. Um, but uh, we, we actually recently hired a uh, community manager whose full-time job it is to uh, seed our early beta users with uh, our products. It's early beta publishers, so not the New York Times, but small blogs. And uh, seed them with the software, uh, give them basically you know, some, some period of time to, to use it, and then we have these, basically these surveys that determine product market fit, and we try to do that relatively, we've sort of assigned one person to do that full-time. If you ask me that as an entrepreneur starting the company, we didn't do anything like that. 
Um, we literally developed the thing in a vacuum. And three months after we started the company, flew out to the Washington Post and showed it to the folks there. And then had kind of an ongoing cycle for about six months before we launched, where during the time that they were configuring their servers to run our software, uh, we actually just communicate with them about once every two weeks and got feedback on developing the product as we were sort of preparing to ship it. It's very odd, actually, because we basically sold a product and they had agreed to buy before it was actually ready. So for the next six months, we sort of co-developed it and got feedback <coughs> on, on what to make it. You know. But I think we have a unique strategy. So. I think the first step is as specifically as possible define exactly who your customer is. And a lot of more consumery internet startups face that challenge. And I mean specific, like feel free to give them a name, give them a job, give them every attribute you can come up with for them. And then figure out, okay, where would Bob, say my customer, hang out online? And how do I find him there? And so we spent a lot of time because when we were just getting started, our customers were small businesses or freelancers, people who were, yes, using it in a business mindset, but really weren't big businesses because we had no hopes of convincing them to use the product at that point. So they behaved like consumers, and they are also just on the Internet reading stuff, so we tried to find where they hang out. And it was a lot of posting in forums, trying to get the blogs that they might read to write about us. Uh, we did a bit of Google AdWords simply to bring in people to, to the site so we could look at where were they clicking around, what were they interested in, what were they reading. Um, and so it's, it's really just, it's a long process, it's very difficult, and I don't think we learned any magical secrets through it. It's just a lot of work posting everywhere you can online and trying to get people to come to your site. I guess I would definitely agree with everything they said and just add that you know the underlying philosophy here as a takeaway is you want to be scrappy, you want to be really opportunistic, you're going to have a strategy for how to get that customer, and then when you're randomly seeing someone in a coffee shop, you want to bring up the company and pitch them on your product as well. Because as a startup, you, again, have only limited amounts of time in the day and resources to go contact these potential customers, and you never know where that conversation might lead. So it should always be kind of on your mind. Um, it's a big part of your life. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with Josh. For, for us, it's probably been three things. One is the book. So turns out writing a book is a really great way to generate leads. And it just so happened that the book came out just as Facebook was taking off. And so it's been really top of mind for a lot of businesses and, and people that we want to really target for our business. And so, so far, just about all of our customers and everyone in our pipeline has come through either the book or they heard me speak while I was on my book tour. So that's been great. So if any of you want to write a book, I highly recommend it. And then uh, the second way has been, especially since our product is really geared towards social media, we've used Facebook and Twitter and, and those technologies to really reach out to people and find people who are already talking about the things that you're selling. They, they describe a problem on Twitter, anybody can search that and you can respond with your solution. You obviously don't want to go in with a hard sales pitch, but if you can genuinely help them, then I think you know, in many cases we've seen, they're genuinely grateful. And then the third one, uh, just like Josh said, is any, anywhere and anyhow, in, in any way that you can. And one of uh, our uh, vertical groups that we're going after are real estate agents. So you better believe that every single realtor who's put up a sign with their phone number or their email address in my neighborhood, I've contacted. And so you just, when you're walking around, you know, you'll, you can, you'll see people who might be interested in what you have to sell or, what, or might be interested in, in giving you feedback. And it's all about starting to talk to them and being genuinely curious in what their problems are. And I also literally have met customers in bars um, and on a ski lift in one case. So it is, like Josh said, anywhere you are, you're talking about your product because you're kind of obsessed with it, it turns out. Um, some people react well to that. Some people don't. But we like the ones that react well to it. 
This was an incredible experience. I hope you found this as interesting as I did, and this was particularly wonderful for me, bringing all of these students back, and especially for you know the folks who ran this lecture series just a few years ago to find themselves now on the stage as the entrepreneurs. So I want to give them a big round of applause. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.